Loud so I can sink. All right. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. We are here on Summer Porch Tour. On, I don't know, you think roof should count as porch? I oh, think so. Oh, absolutely. This is beautiful. You got to talk into that mic. Talk beautiful porch, mic. beautiful roof, man. Wait, why am I not hearing you? We, we did the whole thing. You saw me test levels. Yeah. You saw me test levels. I talk did. into your mic. Test, test, test. Oh, there you yeah, No, no, I can hear you. Test, okay. Talk some more. Test, test, test. There you go. You sound good. I don't, okay. know, why I, I don't know why I'm getting all panicked. No, everyone sounds good. I, why don't I introduce you guys? We've got incredible historians on the podcast, professors, kids that skipped out of school, people <laughs> that really know their shit. Please welcome to the show, Gary, I, I, Richied, 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 bad German. No, bad Rich German. Eyes. <laughs> rich Eyed. Yeah, Rich Eyed. And Charlie Westerman coming through with the easier to pronounce last name. So <laughs> I appreciate that. No problem, man. Uh, all right. Before we get into this book, I read enough of it to know... You cannot possibly still be working as a professor. There is no way. That's true. So t- tell me your professor run, what yeah. you said that they're like, all right, this guy's not <laughs> a leftist. He's not pushing our propaganda. We got to get him out of the system. Yeah, well, I taught for 14 years at, as a adjunct and also as a high school teacher, a history professor. And, boy, I, I incurred a lot of wrath. Um uh, and it, was, it got progressively worse the more I spoke about essentially Austrian economics, freedom, the more I spoke about and just kind of gave the kids a different perspective on history than what they were supposed to have learned in the rote, general, just establishment history class. Yeah, they're like, we got a curriculum here about the New Deal, about how leftists <laughs> right. saved us by printing and spending money. All right, so let's plug the book. It's called A Twisted History of the United States. Uh, for all you people like me that got ADD and don't like reading, I was reading this thing, and it yeah. is fucking smooth. Each paragraph, you got bombshells, you got interesting stuff. It's a libertarian perspective. Mm-hmm. I promise you, if you're a person, you're listening to this show, and the only time you read is when you're making diarrhea, <laughs> this is a good. This is a book you could read on the toilet. You could read four or five pages, know some shit, and like, or like I think three plane rides you could that, breeze through. That this. is that's part of our marketing uh, thing. <laughs> good diarrhea really book. What we were diarrhea going for book. There, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's supposed to be smooth. I mean, uh, we, we we're trying to fill a gap, you know, a gap in which, for example, in the liberty movement, when, for example, you and Dave talk about or any liberty podcast talk about, uh, I, I need to get that history. I need to get that history that supplements or supports and just further proves my argument. That's what this book is supposed to do for people who are, you know, looking back and the purpose of general history is to have the past help you understand why things are as they are now. But all of us know there's no way that if what they taught us in school was true, there's no way that it turns out in the present like it does now. Right? There's no way. Uh, like that's why yes. that's why they. I mean, do you remember in history class ever hearing about the Federal Reserve? No, not you, once. Or how about ratification conventions? Not once. Not I, once. From what I remember, the thing was perfect. Uh, they gave us freedom. They started spending money. And then be, thanks to World War II and getting into wars, we got the economy back up and running, and the FDRs were great. That, that's right. That's, that's, that's a history curriculum in a nutshell. And most of the high school classes only go up to 1945. Now you could call bullshit on us because our book only goes up to 1945, but there's a really good explanation for that. All right, so before we get into that, uh, so was this one of the students you were having sex with that you got fired? How <laughs> How do you know this handsome young man? <laughs> I tried. I taught him in high school. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He and, did, he and, denied you, me. and you were the one guy who's like, all right, this sounds like truth. I'm yeah. in. Yeah. So not right away though. Not right away. This was something that I I wasn't libertarian coming out of Rich Eyes class, although I found most of the things that he said mind blowing. I had to go to college first to see who disagrees with this guy, and then I saw the people who disagree with Gary Rich Eyed and. Their arguments weren't good to me at all. So I wish I could go back in time to my high school history classes with the knowledge I have now. Because mm-hmm. I on my my perception of US history in a nutshell was uh if you look at world history or you look at American history You've got conservatives, they're trying to keep the status quo, and then you got progressives who keep bringing us more freedom. And so I'm just team progressive because they saved the country historically, so why wouldn't you just root for the winning team? Right. That at, at, And every single period, they were pushing for some form of freedom or government spending that the evil conservatives were against. And if we just always listen to them and continue to listen to them, we could be living a good life. Right. 
And then you realize it's just that the conservatives want to spend on their shit and the liberals want to spend on theirs. And then, but for some reason, as it's taught in, in school, it's also, it's always the progressives that are the heroes who, when they are in control of government, have the reins and therefore they're unleashed to do all of the social equity and the good things that they really aim to do when the, when, for example, a, a conservative or someone who's free market minded, like, you know, Grover Cleveland plays a major role in the book. We talk a lot about him uh, as the antithesis of all this. And uh, yeah, so that that's when that's when there's stuff that if you would, I'd love to see <laughs> young Robbie Bernstein, <laughs> but informed like now Robbie Bernstein I going back to his history I classes. Should, uh, I, maybe I could challenge that. There was one history teacher who was a really cool guy. Uh-huh. And I bet if I invite him on, he, he would be down to come on. And he's, he's a smart guy. Uh, so it, it, the, the more interesting one was there was a really boring dude who was like a super hippie guy. Yeah. He would be the more interesting one to debate now. Sure. I wonder what he would say. If I, You know, that's an interesting point about whether he was a part of the old left. Right. Which was good in many ways. You guys talk about this on uh, Part of the Problem all the time. The old left was anti-war. They were anti-establishment. They were renegades. And the new left is just feckless. They don't it's just uh, an obsession built on identity and the biggest thing too is just the that they've abandoned all consideration of people according to class so they're not really marxist anymore they're they're truly like james Lindsay says race marxist or identity marxist and they've identified the underclass or proletariat by racial characteristics or sexual orientation instead of actually being considerate of the poor I think Robbie brings up a good podcast idea. Just bring all your old teachers back Dad. on and just yeah. grill them. It's fun. Just with everything you got now. Yeah. Say, hey, remember in second grade when you said this, this, and this? All that was bullshit. Except yeah, the chemistry teacher. Well, <laughs> maybe we could call it the show Calling Bullshit. Yeah. And that's the entire thing. It's like if you became an expert in your field, you get to bring on your old professor. Mm-hmm. You're and getting revenge for your third grade self. Yeah, that had to yeah. sit there and learn about like Indians or whatever. Yeah. There's irrelevant information. God, they would only apply to about 50 million people in the United States. Yep. Somewhere around there. So tell us, what is your actual like uh, academic history? If you're sure. giving the pitch to people to go, hey, I'm an expert here. Like, yeah. I'm not an expert. I read and then I bullshit. So see, you yes. do this. This is a problem I have with you. Okay. I want to pick this up with you. You'd say that, but you're more erudite and articulate on a wide scope of the things that are pertinent and actually people care about than most people I've ever encountered in my life. So you do the self-deprecating thing? No, but I it's pull, all, I'm telling you, I pull a lot of it out of my ass. But and then it I ends have, up being right, which is even more amazing. <laughs> I, I, I have enough humility that I've been wrong about enough things that like, you know, I just, I, and I just, I turn out to be wrong a bunch. So, but, that, but, <laughs> but the stuff you're right on is it's so right. It, it just, like I said, sometimes it just needs the historical argument that supplements it. And then right. you go, oh, shit, that's, that's airtight. Well, so uh, my, my credentials? Yes. Okay, so, yeah, I uh, went to Loyola, Chicago for undergrad. I majored in history and French. Then I uh, went to University of Chicago, and I got my uh, MA in, in French history, essentially. So you might say, well, why don't you write about France? Well, France is kind of boring. So uh, <laughs> I wrote about a lot uh, about American history. Then I went on to teach for 14 years. I actually got my MA in theology. Uh, weird. This will be a kind of topic of interest, maybe, is that I studied to be a Catholic priest. I thought I was going to be a priest. I got. Well, I you're went still hanging the, out with boys, so well, you, know, it's, you, it's got, perfect. you got the best part. Yeah, Talk about right, a perfect yeah. segue. Yeah, you, know? you didn't even have to go to church for... Oh, uh, well, that's another thing. That's another yeah. reason I got fired, because I was calling all this bullshit out on the bu- abuse in the church, right. and they, you know, they're still trying to cover up all that. Uh, it's wild that it's not a hack joke. I mean, I talk about that a bunch, that it's right. still relevant and I, it's still ongoing. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. And so, oh, and I I went hard in classes after Pope Francis. In fact, one of the... the Charlie, is that how the did, current Pope? Yeah. He's yeah. such a socialist. It's he unbelievable. He, well, he's beyond I, I that. I dedicated the book to Pope Francis for okay. pissing this guy off and getting him... <laughs> that was, <laughs> that was the motivation. Wait, Pope Francis got you personally fired? No, no. No, that'd be something. <laughs> you you yeah. explain it. You explain it. No, um, well, okay, so I started talking about how wrong the Pope was on economics. Right. And they have this skewed vision at both schools at which I taught that this idea, there's a doctrine in Catholicism called papal infallibility. And now a lot of people think that that means the Pope's unerring. They can't screw up. But that's not at all what it is. 
But the worst part about it is that the, essentially the administration of these schools, insofar as Pope Francis agrees with everything they agree with, right? Right. He's soft on abortion. He's, uh, you know, uh, as you said, he's essentially a, a, he's a socialist. He was trained, if you just look at his history, he was trained by Esther Balestrina, it, who was an avowed Marxist. She was one of the people that got thrown out of the helicopters by Pinochet. Oh. Yeah. So he owes his worldview in large part because he worked under her at some lab before he became a priest. But that's why when you read his stuff, it all speaks of Marxism. It's just pure Marxism. And if you, it, the even scarier stuff is if you look back at his old encyclicals, uh, his first encyclical talks about establishing a new world order. It's basically no, right really? out of the, yeah, it's right out of the World Economic Forum. It's as if Klaus Schwab was pope. Well, it always seemed to me that he was clearly in with whatever that globalist leftist agenda is. That he was a mouthpiece for it. He's pushing the global warming. Right. Like every time he talks, I'm like, oh, you're you're like a paid marketing guy. You're like what Fauci is for the it, pharmaceutical yes, companies. Yes, like I can just see the language that you're spewing, and mm -hmm. I go, oh, you're clearly you're hired help. Right. That's who you are. You're yeah. now the marketing division. Great, That's the right. pope is on the side of. Uh, what I would see as the biggest evils in the world, which is this one world government. Absolutely. All right, getting into the book here a little bit, I'm curious to know like, what your general guiding theory is. If there's a theme, so like, for example, mm -hmm. if I had a theme to everything I do, I'll, I, here's the one line. You ready? Yeah. Government's dumb. Let's have less of it. What yes. does less of it mean? Whatever your vision is, I probably want less than that. If I yeah. had to add one more little piece of information to it, I think... Uh, human behavior is largely predictable based off incentive structures. Mm -hmm. And so you can almost look at government and here's a simple one. They've got an incentive to borrow as much as they can from the future, spend as much as they can. It helps them now. They don't have to pay the cost of it. So you can just look at it and go, they're obviously going to do that. So to me, I understand people like the anarchy thing. I like the anarchy thing. I'm like, go get a piece of land where you can do it. I'm all for it. But when I look at government structures, my, my interest is a little bit more the game theory, political science of how sure. do you structure it. So that's kind of my, in a, in a sense, I would say in one paragraph, that's a little bit my theme and guiding philosophy. Coming into your book, what would you say is like the overarching, your North Star of where your kind of analysis is rooted in? Yeah, my North Star is that what you've been taught is part of that establishment narrative that fits in or supplements what you said. Okay. Okay. So, and, and the true history, as you go back and investigate it, is wildly different. It's so wildly different that if you're reading this book and you don't shout, holy shit, oh my God, why did I never know that? Why was that? More, more importantly, Robbie, is like, why was that kept from me? Right. Why was this so, so, so crucial moment? Only, I was only given one side, one bit of analysis. Abraham Lincoln, great. Yep. Honest, wore hats, tall, honest Abe. Yes. Free the slaves. Correct. Well, yeah. think about, too, and I go back to maybe that high school history class you had. And I, I taught at two Catholic schools, so they're religious schools. And in almost every history class, what did you have? You had the scroll of people like icons, right? Like saint images. And they were the presidents of the United States, Right. And you had their birth dates, their years, or I'm sorry, their terms and whatever. And they were always held up, and it was at a point of reference, or reverence, excuse me. You go into another classroom, like a theology classroom, and there's a crucifix in the same position. Right. I don't think, that's not accidental. Right. That's not accidental. And, I mean, one of my major themes in just education and criticizing the current system is that, you know, we have this Bismarckian Prussian 19th century form of education that really hasn't changed. Right. Think about what exists in the purely free market that hasn't altered or been utterly transformed in 150 years, and yet education is still building. And I, I think I blew your minds in class when I said, oh, there goes the bell. Right. Why, why do we have bells? Because they're ushering you off to your next thing in, for factory work, or you're doing the next drill for your being a soldier, or you're a, a government bureaucrat, and you have to go do the next you know, I think. No, I, I, I actually, it's funny. There's a, a fair amount of jokes that are actually like rooted in books that I've read. I'll just be honest. I rip <laughs> off authors when it comes to jokes. I do. I, <laughs> you take some from here. From here. We won't. Please. Yeah, I, I hope so. I never take, like, I've never read a joke in a book and gone, Hey, that's my joke now. But like, I've read a, like a concept and been like, Oh, there's truth in there. I'm going to figure out a joke in it. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've never read it, Gust of Le Bon's The Crowd. It's a, it's a thin book I and it's a it. worthwhile read. It's essentially, uh, 
an early piece of like kind of identifying how propaganda works. He has one page on the Prussian learning system, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, which I took from, which I thought was an accuracy is that we're all individuals and there's some things that excite us. And whatever excites you is probably individual to you, which means that you can go and you can go master that thing, right? And our school system, it's structured where you're like, you got to learn all these different topics. Most of them we're not interested in, so you're cheating. You're not really there. It's literally just wasting your time. Whereas, like, I have no interest in being a mechanic. I could look at a car all day. I'm a Jew. What am I going to fucking screw things in? (laughs) But you know what I mean? Some other guy opens up a hood of a car... And that that that's like porn to me. He's like, holy shit, that's this right. is where this valve is, this is where and so it's like there's no reason for me to look under a hood of a car, and there's no reason why that guy needs to learn economics. Let him get under mm-hmm, a hood of a car, mm-hmm. fucking master the shit out of that. Right. And everyone's guiding light can just be literally, you're gonna need a job, what excites you? Go master that. Right. Could you think of a of a system or an institution that would be more geared to go at war against the division of labor in the free market? Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Where, it really is. Right. The root of economics is that you should be able to specialize and have a division of labor, whereas school, what they keep us in for 24 years, is about this broad framework, Correct. which is anti, almost against specialization. Right. Another point to that, to strengthen that, is think about the people who went on board with COVID so hard. It was the professional class, by and large. And I've thought about i think it's all government money i really just think there's so much money filtered into the system Mm -hmm. that like everyone's just kind of aware of the fact that they have to they have to stay in line but what about think about all the schooling that a lawyer or doctor engineer has to go through and all they've done been done i'm not saying they're not bright right but they also are the ones that got A's and got pat on the head right. for being the so go-along So they like kids. structures. That's right. the thing. They is love that structures. They yeah. And when that structure, that hyperstructure like the CDC or the federal government, which is the uber hyperstructure, tells you that this is to be done, you, you Right, obey. because they, they fit within that system and they excel within the system, so they like the rules of it. And they're like, we let's keep this in place. Because I work well in here. I want to turn it right. over, though, because you're actually... How old are you? 21. 21. You really go for the young boys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're 21. You were lucky enough that you kind of... We live in a slightly different world now where you've got people with the online courses. You can kind of pick your field of study. So you, you didn't do college. and I did then, a year of college. Okay. And then I was going to take a year off anyways, but then it was the COVID year, so that was convenient because my parents were finally on board with me taking a year off. Right. And then I started Praxis... And then landed a job from there and just kept working. So escaped the school system that I was trying to get myself out of. And it worked itself out. So pumped about that. I and sometimes uh, think about, firstly, you're so lucky because the work experience I've gotten trumps anything I, I ever got out of school. Ever. Like just real world work experience. You can't beat it. Uh, on that note, I look back at school and what did I, I would cram before a final and like, so I almost feel like there's two really big gripes that I would have on education. One mm-hmm. is when you hear an idea that's like true and exciting, right. you know what I mean? Like knowledge. How do you fuck up knowledge? If I'm <laughs> sitting in school every day and I'm bored, you're clearly lying to me because there's a sensation of when someone gives you a piece of knowledge that you did not have, that you can now make more money or you can navigate social settings better, or you have a clear understanding. There's like an orgasmic feeling in your head. Like we, it's literally mm-hmm. a sensation where your brain tingles. You're like, Holy shit, yep. this is a new lens. I never got that in school. Like it, like that, if there's anything that would just point to the fact, the other, and then the other thing is like, I look back and sometimes I'm reading a book and I'm like, this is more than I read an entire semester in college. Right. <laughs> I probably did more today in an hour skimming your book than I did on fucking in a a course of history in high school. But like because you're just doing it on your own, I don't know, and there's no paper at the end. Even in my own head, you don't really feel like, you know, you almost got to remind yourself that they don't they don't have a monopoly on what learning really is. Right. And if and if they did, they do it so poorly, they shouldn't have it. And shouldn't feel like a chore. Yeah. Yeah. Should feel fun. This making this was fun. There's YouTube videos that are fun. It shouldn't feel like 45 minutes a day, you know, necks in a Z shape like you said last night, right. Dave said last night. It shouldn't be that way. But we're so used to it that we think that's how it should be. Right. So let's get into uh, some of the things that I, I picked up in the book and I was interested in. We're going to cover the first half and then we'll do uh, World War II on a second time. And then I'm also going to read the book uh, start to finish and I'm sure I'll have more questions. 
Uh, the first one, I want to get into some spicy takes here. And one of the mm. themes that I picked up on was that you explored that governments invested in, in imperialism actually have poor returns on war. That you seem to have governments mm. highly invested in, hey, let's go invade, let's go do this. And that's how we're going to acquire wealth. And you seem to uh, point out the flaws in that and that it's actually not a winning system. So I'll hand it over to you to kind of educate people. Sure. Whether you're talking about the old British imperial system in which you had essentially you had these joint stock companies, this going back well before even what we consider the height of the British Empire. And you had joint stock companies which were operating like the Virginia Company of London, which sent, uh, essentially settles Jamestown. And you have these entrepreneurial ventures, and they're they're at the head. The, the, when you read in a normal history class, you get the sense because we ha- operate in this government or state paradigm that the state is really the the main uh, drive or impetus to all things in history. You get the sense that the English were really engaged early on in building these, for example, the English se- or the Eastern Seaboard colonies in North America. The English government really could not have cared less. Uh, about this. I mean, they got a charter in 1603. It, essentially, James just says, if you go there, you're going to have uh, some religious freedom and you're going to be able to have relative autonomy. Okay. And then from that point on, there's a term that historians use, which I do use in the book because it's helpful, is salutary neglect. The British are just sort of giving a salute, like, you guys do your thing. As long as you're somewhat profitable for the empire, that do your stuff. I mean, you want to have this kind of autonomous government? Fine. The British were much more interested in the Caribbean colonies where right. the sugar was and the slave economy was was located. Okay. Now, when you have these various and it goes in the case of the American Empire too, when the governments start getting involved, what ends up happening is you have this very early form of rent seeking and protectionism. Because those large corporations then say, well, well fuck, I, I don't, I'm not going to expend all these resources to send entrepreneurs out to China to figure out the language and negotiate with the Ming Dynasty or whoever's in power. I'll just petition my MP. And kill some Parliament people. And we'll send in the Navy. Right. <laughs> just take some sugar. And the British were so successful at that. Right. The, Brit- the British were so successful at it that other European nations continued to replicate it. I guess the worst form of it is in the in the Belgian Congo, where you have the rape of the Congo and 8 million Congolese. And essentially, we still have pictures. There's a great book by Adam Hochschild called King Leopold's Ghost, which is just to your point. It shows that we have pictures in the late 19th century of boats coming from Africa, from the Congo, into Antwerp, the harbor in Belgium, and they're laden with with goods. I mean, they're almost sinking in the harbor. They're so bound with stuff. <laughs> and then they leave empty. They go back. They, we have pictures from the Congo in Leopoldville, in the city where on the river. They're empty. They're, there's nothing going back. There's no exchange. It's just pillage. You mean they were just going there to rape? The, well, in a literal sense, yes. Okay. Because the Belgians did rape the Congolese. Right. But they also engaged in horrific tortures. If you didn't go out, the big thing was rubber. You had to go out into these jungle areas and obtain rubber from the rubber trees. And they would just, maim- if you didn't fill your rubber quota, they a would. rubber tree? Yeah, I know. Isn't that fun? <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. Does yeah. it have like tires just hanging off of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take the, uh, yeah, I'll take the Goodyear's, uh, that one. Uh, that's that species. But uh, yeah, so they got to go out and they, if they didn't fill their quota, they would chop their hand, chop their arms off. They would take their families, they would kidnap their families, rape their women. Right. And so, it's tough to reach the quota the next time if you ain't got no arms. Right. And then, but. It ended up You're jumping being, up with your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but it ends up being just like when the Spanish pillaged the New World. It ends up being a curse, as almost more than it's a blessing to rob those riches, because you end up having these price fluctuations and horrible governmental policies. You know, people forget, and I mentioned in the book, but the Spanish monarchs during the supposed Spanish Golden Age declared bankruptcy nine times. They were inflating their currency because they got caught in this system, in this imperial sort of rock at a hard place, wherein they had to pay for this enormous expenditure to keep the, the bezel going and the right. boondoggle going. And they, but then they kept spending more and more to keep extracting the same silver from Potosi and all these uh, New World mines. So they got locked into it and became, as I think, 
the American empire has become almost embedded in our culture. We simply think it's granted or it's been that way all the time that they couldn't depart from that matrix. They just kept throwing themselves into bankruptcy. And it ended up, I mean, by the 18th century, Spain's like just a third world power or third rate power and right. not even on the world stage anymore. So, so that's how it's detrimental. You touched on uh, two other things that I wanted to get into. And then just to let people know where the conversation's going, I do want to get into a couple spicy takes on our founding fathers and a little mm. bit of the ratification. Uh, but one of the things I noticed you touched upon in the book uh, was kind of the Gilded Age. Uh, and that, and you mentioned this because I, I remember the jungle. Uh, they taught us about oh, the yeah. jungle and just how bad yeah. factories were and how bad the meat was. And if mm. it wasn't for the trust busters and the breaking up the unions and the worker protections. And but then you also look at it like, and I've, I've, I'm mostly working from Dave, who said this before, but like we're talking about the greatest wealth expansion in human history. Correct. So like I I I, I mean, and I think this is where I'll hand it back to you. They're you do have to look at things as a as a compared to what perspective, not as a compared to what like compare the way we're living now perspective. So I hand it back to you to kind of make the pitch for what pure freedom looked like and what we were able to kind of accomplish in that time period, mm-hmm. and then some of the lies that they tell us about it. Yeah, let me illustrate that with an episode from the Grover Cleveland presidency. I mean, imagine for a moment you have a president. Johnny, I got a, I got a seat in a mic for you. Just hop right on. All right, man. We got Johnny from the Peddling Fiction yeah. Podcast joining us. He's got a fresh glass of water. What He's happened ready, to the hot chick? Did he chase her away? Yeah, where did she go? She's bagging some rays over there. Oh, yeah, she is. There oh, she is. Oh, getting a suntan on. All right. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. So think of this episode. You got Grover Cleveland as president of the United States, and there's this series of droughts in the 1880s in Texas. And there are some in Congress. They're mostly on the Republican side that are starting to dip their toe into progressivism. Let's have a government solution. So there's this minimal allotment. There's a bill that's brought up. It's called the Texas Seed Bill. And it's going to allot something like $10,000, not a huge amount even back then, for farmers to buy this seed. Cleveland says, we got to veto it. There's no constitutional power. Moreover, not only is there not constitutional power, we're going to be inhibiting the ability for Texan farmers to reconstitute their farms and actually have a productive harvest if we infuse government oversight because we don't do it well. And they're in Texas. What do I, as a New York upstate mayor, now president, know about what seed to buy? And how should I, how should I employ some government agent from Washington or Virginia to go to Texas to do this? Instead, he argues, let us instead rely upon the generosity of the American people to recognize that these people in Texas need help after these droughts. They ended up ma- raising much more money. I mean, like 10, 11 fold for the Texas farmers. And what did <laughs> I imagine a scenario, Robbie, too, is like, what did he get for that? He got voted out of office. But but interesting to note is that Lysander Spooner wrote a series of letters to him. And Lysander Spooner is just ripping him apart about being too, despite the fact that, can you imagine Joe Biden saying we're not going to allow $15 billion to Texas farmers? Or, right. Right? And he just rips him apart about his, Grover Cleed's inaugural address and how he's too interventionist. It was a different world. And the, the degree of self-reliance and the degree of community, you know, uh, I think you guys just talked about it on part of the problem about these community organizations, fraternal organizations that handled everything from health care to uh, child care. And they were all organic. They were all organic and they were built for operating within that particular place. And they were incredibly successful without any reliance on government, so much so that Cleveland's running surpluses. They don't even know what to do with the money. I think part of the, uh, uh, I mean, I don't help anyone in my life. Um, I'm not a part of any fraternal organizations. I give zero charity. Yeah. Uh, but that is not true. He bought me a cup, cup of coffee yesterday. There you go. It was a good cup of coffee, John. Yeah, it took about 20 minutes. I got honked at by a bus. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. No, it was delicious. The best nice. coffee comes from places with the worst attitudes. That we, is true. Yeah, I don't know why. If you see Black Lives Matter and Rainbow Flag, they got good coffee. <gasps> There's no good the like conservative coffee shops. You know what I mean? Like that does not doesn't yeah. exist. But anyways, yeah. they're gonna try just take black or something like that. Well, I mean, I like yeah. black coffee, but you know. Anyways, 
What was I did Jesus Christ? You derailed me. You yeah. You're talking charity. Oh, no, I do I I do think that when there's one government like it, it becomes a system of well, how do I like how do I take from this thing because it, there's no there's no community feeling. There's no I I'm contributing to these people that I care about. It becomes like the system of there it's force like forcefully taking from me. Mm-hmm. So how do I get it's like a very much a piece of the pie attitude. And then also I think that people look at government and go, well, I've given my taxes, so now it's government's job to do these other things. And so, like, we kind of feel like morally, which is part of the sale of government, is that people get to feel like they're on the moral high ground by supporting it because that's the way that we do these charitable things. And that's, like, lazy. And then voting is like charity because you're trying to initiate the government to carry out your wishes. After all, they're usurping your the fruit of your labor. Right. So that's why there's a sort of religiosity around voting. You know, like you get your sticker and people consider it so, like a holy day, right? Going back to the Gilded Age, so what? let's give us the cost benefit. What was the greatness that came out of the freedom of that era? And then what's some of the biggest bullshit that they taught us to kind of say, hey, it was a tragedy and this is why we needed government regulation? Right. Uh, I give a lot of credit to Tom Woods here because his politically incorrect guide explodes these myths about predatory pricing and monopolies how they how they operated supposedly and he has a chapter in that how big business made americans better off and the biggest scandal about when you read uh even in a college course uh about the gilded age it's always the 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 robber barons the the rockefellers the hills the dukes the stanfords of the world the vanderbilts that the, the idea is that they are always engaged in this nefarious undertaking of screwing over the consumer. But that betrays an economic reality, and, or goes against an economic reality, and contradicts it, in that the reason they became rich was because they made what they... They provided value. Provided, but they made it cheap. Right. They scaled it. So when Rockefeller starts engaging in all of these uh, innovations and creating byproducts, so he made it like a, something like 150 products from the excess what was left for the petroleum okay when he does that he's lowering the price to the point where and this helps environmentalists should realize this the major way that before the rockefeller age and the gilded age americans lit their homes was from sperm whale oil fucking wheels whale semen Same yeah whales. <laughs> you had to, to jerk off a whale and smell yeah. that bleach it's i don't gross. know if the, that, that sounds flammable the sperm whale <laughs> yeah. but uh maybe more yeah more flammable than the oil but so now you see, if you chart, and historians have done this, if you chart a graph of American literacy, it charts perfectly with the availability of cheap kerosene. And then so they can light those their assholes homes reading night. socialism bullshit. That, well, yeah, hopefully they weren't reading. <laughs> now, let me ask you, or, specifically yeah. Rockefeller. So I've heard that this narrative with Rockefeller and what he accomplished specifically with Standard Oil, right? Mm-hmm. And that storyline of, you know, it was actually better for the environment because now we're not, like, burning logs or other, other stuff and right. whatnot. But then, isn't the other side of Rockefeller kind of, and this gets, maybe this is more Carnegie, but like, isn't he kind of in on the banking apparatus, and then also they talk about kind of the uh, degeneration, uh, whatever the word I'm looking for, of like medicine, and that he kind of, oh, yeah. like doesn't, like when did he flip from being, I guess, a good capitalist who came up with the product, made a massive amount of money because he actually mm-hmm. created value in the marketplace, to then... Kind of seemingly, and I'm not, I'm not well raised, but seemingly being like a more established player, and then starting to play the different game, which is, oh, I can lobby government and start having an angle here where I can make money without providing value to the marketplace. Yeah, there's an evolution among the robber barons, and the more that they're able to get ingratiated with government and get a hold of their senators and representatives, it actually coincides more so with the lack of success for their monopolies. Right. So. By the point, the high point of Rockefeller's engagement with government and being a rent seeker is really when Standard Oil is on the decline by right. the 1900s. I bet some of it also came from when they got regulated and they're like, oh, oh this is the better. Like, what, why am I working hard for if the government can just come in and make these laws that are going to affect your business? That, that's what I got to go work on. Much, yeah, exactly. Much easier to stroke a check than uh, yeah. work for That's it. right. I interrupted right. you, though. Oh, no. And, and Carnegie is the same thing. I mean, the. And Burton Folsom, who's a professor at uh, Hillsdale College, I think, he wrote, he, we have to make a distinction here between what he calls political entrepreneurs, and those are the rent seekers. Those are the, when they have a problem with like uh, some German cartel that's 
bringing in, I don't know, say a chemical, and they want to pass tariffs, they're the ones who go to their congressmen and say, we got to shut off the import of these German chemicals, right? So that they have a, 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 a hold on, the, on demand, right? But then you have these market entrepreneurs, and they're not always one or the other, you know, right? But the greatest example is uh, of, a, of a market entrepreneur is James Hill. He built the Great Northern Railroad. And essentially, he just, what he did was he understood that the mark or the value proposition for a railroad, because what the fuck is the difference between uh, going on this railroad versus another railroad? It's a railroad. You're right. just taking freight, right? So you have to give incentives to those who are doing a lot of uh, freight. So for big farmers, he'd give cost breaks. And in 1906, the government outlawed that. Right. And because Hill wasn't going to play their game. And essentially what that ended up doing with this Hepburn Act of 1906, because America was producing so much grain at this time, and he was able to ship it out with such speed and rapidity, that starving people in Asia were starting to get American grain. And then government put an end to it. Put an end to it. Yeah, because they're yeah. like this little piece of the... I don't even know why they would take issue. Why were they taking issue with that? The, because, uh, yeah, there were... He felt like it was a monopoly that he was able to get a cheaper price to the larger farmers. And here, here, right, here's your argument, your Hoppian argument is, well, this is what's the problem with democracy. You have a lot more poor farmers. Right. They cried foul, and they essentially wanted to, and it was a populist party position and their platform to regulate the railroads right so and what they're not actually breaks. seeing is that the automation of the bigger farmers who are good at it can actually get more of the grain to the market at cheaper prices correct which becomes the efficiency of the system and then you can evolve on to the next activity and indeed there'd be more grain in america yeah, so it's protectionism available. it's like yeah it's the same as like when you invent any new technology it's like imagine like uh, i'll just give you like a modern day example they create smart contracts you don't need a lawyer for your house like mm-hmm. you can just sell your house smart contract you don't need a lawyer you don't have to pay that person you don't need a realtor you don't need the title company and so then all those people are lobbying the government to keep their well yeah they can keep their jobs but like we just saved everybody money they're gonna go spend that money and you just made the thing more efficient and now guess what these lawyers are smart people they can find a new job that's actually productive same with these farmers if like if at the core like look at it this way if at the core of what you're trying to do is work so that you don't have to starve but someone else can do that better you'll end up with food that's well, right. They're yeah. going to have to sell it to someone. All right. <laughs> Next question I got for you. So this is more of the stuff where he does the self-deprecating thing, and then he spouts I know, brilliance he's so for sharp. Yeah. And he's, I blew that on my ass. Well, because yeah, it is a – well, we're talking about diarrhea books, so it's fitting. But, <laughs> I mean, really, it, it ends up being right in gold, so I don't like the self-deprecating bullshit. Lysander Spooner, I know nothing about him. I've heard him brought up in libertarian circles. Right. So I hear the name enough to know, oh, I should probably go check that guy out. I saw the name drop in your book. Give me a little Lysander Spooner education. Yeah. Uh, if you want a hero of the 19th century and libertarian movement, I think the, the standouts are Bastiat in Europe and uh, several others in Europe. But uh, stateside, it's Spooner. Because Spooner crushes the John Locke consent of government argument. And he goes so far as to say that the Constitution is of no authority. Because... If you read his uh, provocative, most provocative essays, and well, that's pretty much saying all of them because he was a provocateur in right. the best sense. Uh, he just says you, there is no means by which government can assume that it has the ability of, of guardianship over your unalienable rights. Uh, Locke said it was a kind of tacit understanding or implied understanding. Uh, but Spooner says... What is that? The, he, Spooner was so heavy into contract and agreement and mutual cooperation, which is at the core of capitalism. Right. right? It's cooperative. And so when he railed against slavery, he was an early abolitionist. And he was also someone who defended uh, the South's right to secede. Uh, because, again, the South was essentially saying, look, we had this union. We, we built it. We constituted it. We were... We were pre-hoc the whole union, so we have the right to leave. Right. And it's a right of self-governance. Uh, so he, in a time in an area, he was from Massachusetts, where that would not be a well-received argument, he made it anyway. He was bold. Uh, the thing I love about him, too, is that he started an alternative post office. Uh, he was against, he was, you know, when people, we talk uh, today, I think a lot of libertarians, especially the kind of Cato reason crowd, right? Uh, they like to talk about licensure laws because it's convenient because they could talk about the Af- poor African American or the poor black woman on the west side of Chicago who has her own braiding thing. 
right? And it gets shut down by the state government. But Spooner was against licensure laws because he said they were bullshit. not only is the government supposed to be securing my liberties, but then they give me a license to do what I would ordinarily do. And they have no um, wherewithal to determine whether I'm good at it or not. So he started a post office, an alternative, and it ran so much better than the U.S. post office that the feds forcefully shut it down. And they were he was tied up in lawsuits for All right. a lot of his life. So we teased, uh, the, uh, I guess, the ratification of the Constitution, the way it's taught in school is mm. everybody's on board. It's the creation of, and we got this brilliant document securing freedoms. Uh, but what I'm starting to understand is that n- not everyone was on board. Right. You're actually creating a federal authority. And I guess um, from, I, I read Rothbard's book, I, I think a history of uh, uh, mon- or money and banking in the United States, mm-hmm. the Big Ass Green Book. Yeah. That's the way I always remember it. The Big Ass Green Book. Yeah. And one of the things which is shocking is he just talks about the failures of bank after bank after bank in the United States of America. We're just continuously, they're just doing, you know, they're engaging in fractional reserve banking and it just keeps failing. And yeah. so they keep having to roll banks into bigger banking systems, into bigger banking systems, all the way up till creations of the Federal Reserve. But from what I noticed from your book, it sounded like there was a little bit of an argument that the reason why uh, the people that were pushing this federal government move forward with that was to kind of bail themselves out of some debt positions and maybe so i I hand it back to you two-part question one who were the people that were objecting to it Uh why was it ratified and then was it mostly financial yeah the names are famous of those who are the anti-federalists those that were against the ratification constitution you know them well they're patrick henry but they're he's not really the only thing you remember from patrick henry right in school is he said give me liberty or give me death i know that one okay yeah you know that one because it's easy to remember right, right. and you remember no Did they kill him <laughs> uh, no but but um that would be a funny end to the story if they just shot him on the spot <laughs> they, they shot him. and he was just like well that wasn't a good idea <laughs> they shot him, especially when he said no to the constitution he, he actually at one point said i declare i smell a rat when right. the that was ben gonna, franklin though i think it was henry too no i bet franklin just smelled. oh, oh they smell yeah <laughs> okay i mean yeah, i like I franklin be... but i bet he stunk oh to high, heaven. To high heaven yeah oh god I, and he was he was really old they had to carry him in to the yeah, he was receiving. fat and yeah. he was still having sex with old ladies. He had all the STDs. Yeah, he had that French smell still on him from all those yeah. times in the Revolutionary War. Didn't cut his hair. Yeah. He was a big old stink ball. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. So, but uh, what the hell was the question again? We got off uh, on, uh, We were talking about the uh, ratification of the Constitution and why it's right. not the way they taught us, us in school. It wasn't everyone on board <laughs> and the establishment of a grand old country. Oh, yeah. So think about think about this. So we're talking about the Constitutional Convention being, at least as an idea, mainly authored by Hamilton or formulated by Hamilton in 1786 and 1787. That's the genesis of his idea. But all between that time, he's just... He, we have to understand something about Hamilton. He was a, a really... He was an anomaly. I mean, he wasn't from the United States. He was born in the Caribbean. So he didn't have allegiance to one state. He called He called New York his home. But he was born on Nevis in the Caribbean. Now... I'll give him a lot of credit. He was a genius. He was a genius. When he was a he was an orphan, his his uncle actually took him under his wing, and he was so good at running the books that his uncle handed him his shipping company right. at the age of fourteen to run it. Okay. Now, am I wrong? To me, Hamilton though pushed uh, kind of your centralized banking apparatus yeah. against uh, Jackson, uh, who was like so. To me, I, I guess I have a distorted view of Hamilton. You mean that- Jefferson? Not Jackson. Well, I thought Andrew Jackson was the guy who was. Well, that's the later banks. That's I'm talking the, right. later banks. Oh, right. The earlier one. Well, to me, all right. I, this is all. This, this is me. Add. <laughs> My take on Jefferson is that he had his uh, personal self control issues, which also gave him the best view on government. Realizing that if you give people the power to be pieces of shit, they will be. Mm. And so he was kind of game theoring government and going, "Hey, we got to restrict this thing because he's like, I know the way I'll behave, and so no one should be able to act <laughs> this way." That's kind of my. My, like the the yeah. brilliance of Jefferson, whereas mm-hmm. Hamilton, mm-hmm. Uh, to me, he was like, uh, you know, he he's he's almost like chief evil because he's he's pushing the big banks. He's a control freak. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What Hamilton believed was that there was no. He loved everything British. 
everything British. Which is gay off the bat. Right away. <laughs> the tea, the crumpets, yeah. the clothing, the accents. I mean, that's, isn't that why we started our own thing was to not... It was certainly part of it. Yeah. And that's what I'm most proud of. But yeah, so he was a control freak. He thought that the only way that the United States could achieve the vision he had for it, which was somewhat urbanized. Now, he has this whole riff about how he hates the cities, which is odd because people think he's like a big into cities, but he's really not. But he thought they were dens of iniquity and they all hated the cities, actually. But the only way that they achieved the not, what I call in the book, the non-Detroitification of the American economy, because when he's looking out, he's saying, look, this is an agrarian society. This is just, and it was naturally such because that's what the role of the colonies along the Eastern Seabird was, for decades, in fact, uh, essentially centuries, under the British Empire. They were to make food, especially rice and grain, to be shipped off to the English Caribbean colonies to feed the slaves who are going to produce the sugar, and then we have this triangular trade, this, this trade. And he says, look, the only way we're going to be anything as a country is we have to have a strong industrial sector, like Britain. We have to have a strong financial center sector, that financial sector cannot be controlled by wildcat bankers and, and those who are the entrepreneurs out, out in the wilderness or stuff like that or the frontier. So it's got to be controlled from the center of the locus of power, which he's going to make the federal treasury. And we have to have an agricultural sector. We have to have a diversified economy. Now, he's right about that. But the means by which he goes right, he just it, doesn't. He do, he's not a true believer in freedom. Absolutely not. Yeah, he's he doesn't. A, he doesn't see that freedom can bring all these things. So he's like, we're gonna have to step in if we want to compete. Precisely. Which, by the way, to me is such a uh, epic blunder that's continuously made. I, I'll give you like a recent example in my head is Glass Steagall. Mm. That they look at what's going on in Europe, you know, and they're like. Anyways, I, I keep seeing like our country going, hey, we got to compete with what these other people are doing. Like even look at China, like China's going to fucking crumble under its own weight sure. because of the way that their government spends. Um, all right. I want to I, I feel like I'm being a bad host here. Gary's <laughs> dropping all these bombs. So I'm just I'm, I'm coming at you with rapid fire <laughs> questions. Uh, so, Charlie, of all the topics that we just run through, is there anything you, 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 you care to add, particularly on the uh, ratification of the Constitution, the way they lied to us about it. Nah, man, you guys covered it. I mean, you're not going to get a better explanation. <laughs> All right, as long as you're on board. <laughs> for him, yeah. You know, uh, yeah not... By the way, you can be aggressive. I'm aggressive, so if you got something, yeah, no, just I, fucking... I'll, I'll shout it out for sure, but I like this rapid fire if you got any more for him. Hell yeah. What about you, Johnny? You got any well, questions for uh, oh, Gary? Uh, um, not yet, but I do have some comments to make. Please. All right, please. All, is this a clean sock over my No, head? definitely not. <laughs> Excellent. Uh... Well, Makes you the guest I, it of really honor. It really is unbelievable, though, when it comes to, like, contracts. You know, like, mm. we just take it for granted. There's this tacit um, approval, you know, the, the social contract things. Like, every aspect of our life is run by this invisible imaginary contract that we all just agreed to. But if you do anything, like, if you fucking go on to a website they, or, like, a video, you play a video game, they give you that long-ass fucking contract that nobody reads, but you still have to check the box and say, I agree to whatever the fuck you're talking about. Yeah. And there's nothing like that. We never checked any box. No. But every aspect of your life is regulated by these fucking maniacs. Yes. And they don't even, yeah, there's no box to check. There's no nothing. So that's, like, the Lysander Spooner in a nutshell is, is. I never checked a box. I never Let's checked the box. Let's make that shirt. That's a great yeah, shirt. I never checked the box. I never checked government. the box. Yeah. Nice and simple. Yeah. yeah. Tom Woods says it succinctly, too. He says, look, I don't remember a contract. You're talking about consent and contract. I never signed any contract to to allow you to essentially give, uh, take away and usurp what I own and give me and promise me nothing. You, they, it promises you literally nothing. Well, I always love with the the famous line of it's not what you can do for your country. I mean, oh, it's the, not what the, the country, country can do for you. Yeah. It's what, it's like well, you're taking my fucking money. So what the fuck? Like, <laughs> if I'm giving you all the money, what are you gonna do for me? That's right. Like, what you're gonna take all my taxes and now it's what what can I do for the country? I just paid my bill. Like, yeah. Can you imagine like your electric company? You pay your electric company. And they're like, hey, so what else are you gonna do for me? Yeah, like, I just uh, paid the electric bill. Isn't it ironic <laughs> then that you know Kennedy's life ends with what the government does to you? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, and it, it fosters this. You, you sounded like a voter at like one of the presidential things where they take questions like, what are you going to do for college students? Yeah. Lot? Like, what are you going to do for us? It fosters that mentality because they're taking money from you. Right. And That's a like, moral right, hazard. Well, you're taking 50% of what I earn or whatever it is. And what, what am I getting for that? Right. When in, you know, when in reality, we, what we want is we want people to do things for themselves and provide for themselves and 
that whole mentality is completely perverted by government. Like, they, they just poison everything. No, and I think, uh, like, force is the world's greatest motivator. I'd like, so it's like, I look at my own life. Like, when you're forced to do something, the focus you can have to get it done is it cannot yeah, be replicated. You know, like, you just, yeah, it yeah. just, you cannot replicate when you actually have, like, dude, I even know that with, like, writing, like, jokes. Like, it's the same as with finals. It's like, if I actually have the show coming up, all of a sudden I can focus. Like, the amount mm-hmm. of work I get done on an airplane because I got to memorize the thing for tomorrow. If I did that amount of work, every, but there's no way for me to replicate that. You know what I mean? The urgency of it. So when you live your life and there are some built-in protections of government's going to pay my health care, government might say, it's like when there are, people, there's no way that for a large amount of our society that does not in some way get in the way. Of, I know the, the motivation. I know some of the people in my life that have worked really hard. I, I have a friend. We all grew up, and he realized, I don't have a dad. No one's looking out for me. And I, he outworked all of us. He's mm-hmm. the wealthiest kid in my peer group. He fended for himself, and it came purely from fear of there is no one looking out for me. I better do something for myself. You can't duplicate that, and that's where I think government somewhat does people a disservice because it, it, it's making you feel like you're safer than you are, sure. and the system potentially could fail. Could, could I maybe tell me about your friend, though, because I wonder if there wasn't not only the absence of his father drove him, uh, like John said, uh, necessity is born innovation and, and hard work and right. industriousness, but I wonder if there wasn't some sort of inherent joy that he derived from that. Well, you I know, think he does. But, I think he does now because he's like the most measured, exacting person. So I think he gets like a satisfaction of being mm-hmm. literally a better human being. Right. Like he looks like Brad Pitt. He has a perfect diet. Like he. You've never. I, it's it almost sounds like you're into this guy. No, <laughs> no. He's almost. He's almost irritating to be around because, like, he's. It's like I, he doesn't I let me unclothe him. <laughs> no, he's he's <laughs> not fun to hang. That would be the peg is that he's not fun to hang out with anymore because like everything's so rigid, structured, oh. and like he almost is like mm. he's almost like irritated with other people because they don't operate the way he oh, does. Yeah, uh, but. That that fuck you, you had a dad. Yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing. Something something along those lines. All right, so I want to close out with this. Let's do some quick spicy takes on some of the people that are considered legendary figures. One of the ones I saw in the book was uh, George Washington picking fights that there were no reason to pick. Right. Uh, so lay us on it. Give give us the hot take. Let's keep him snappy. Yeah. Hot take. Uh, hot George take. Washington. George Washington started two world wars. Like Winston Tr- Churchill. Uh, they're the only two really that I could think of it. He uh, goes out to this Ohio wilderness. You and I, sensible, with a bunch of Virginia militiamen, we'd say, oh, fuck, there's a bunch of Indians and French out here. Let's just retreat back to Virginia. Instead, he orders fire. He opens fire on them. And just like George Washington, most of his life, he, got, he almost got captured, or he was captured for a time. So he was a terrible general. Terrible general. All right, I'll he was pass retreating to this most one. Of the time. Hot take, Ben Franklin. Smells really bad, man. <laughs> smells really bad. <laughs> All right. I'll give you another one. This is an easy one. Uh, let's go Lincoln. Lincoln, not the hero that is sold to us in schools at all. And when you were claiming not even that bright. No, he wasn't no. He wasn't considered by his contemporaries being bright. Uh, the, the, if you look at both domestic and foreign papers, they just constantly deride him, deride him. And he's just seen as this kind of bird-like, storky figure. And he was, especially, we don't realize this, but he was, he was within a razor's edge of losing the presidency in 1864. I mean, it was just a bunch of battlefield victories like Gettysburg and Vicksburg that turned the tide for him. Otherwise, he might have lost to his own old general. His, his, his generals hated him. Most of his generals hated him. McClellan despised him. Well, because he wants to send everyone well, to it. Generals don't want to work. They're the same as everyone else. They're like, shit, we got to actually go fight in these battles? This is really a part of the uh, centrality of the book. Think about the idiocy of this Lincoln is going to go to war and conscript men to force them to fight and to the tune of a million people willing to sacrifice them to preserve the inherent beauty and the perfection of the union and then the whole war he breaks everything in the constitution that formed the union right so what's the sacredness that you're appealing to if you're violating all of it in order to accomplish the the sacredness is that he was someone who ascribed to northern dominance of the south right that the war should really be called the war of northern colonialization of the south did he even wear top hats yeah he did once let me read the the lincoln quote okay we got my paramount object in this struggle is to save the union 
and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. All right. Any other spicy takes on founding fathers? Uh, Sam Adams was the, really the father of the American Revolution. They all identi- George Washington identified them as that. He, there's no American Revolution without Samuel Adams. Uh, Samuel Adams was also in the in the aftermath and the ratification conventions in Massachusetts. He was an anti-federalist at first. He was railed against the Constitution. But they but won him over? over. They won him over. How? Unfortunately. Uh, Young boys. I, no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I, I don't. He, he came, to his credit, he came to be persuaded by the fact that, and this was the Hamiltonian argument by right. large, that if we have these self-operative, self-concerned, the states were operating like um, those, what, are we, what, are, what is the acronym for those uh, special interest committees? There's like special interest groups. They're all their own special interest groups. Right. They're like PACs, you know? And he said that we were never going to have any dynamic exchange within the economy. So ironically, they were making a sort of capitalistic market argument for why we need a more centralized government, but one that he thought was tempered enough to allow the states to still have most of the sovereignty. And I guess what's also interesting about that is it, uh, it, conceptually they're kind of saying, hey, we need to put a judge into the game because, a referee, every, like, yeah, yeah. because everyone's uh, – not engaging in the best trade practices. The reality is, though, uh, is that they probably would have figured out a different solution to that problem. Of course and it probably would. would have been better contracts between individual states or companies. Yeah, and like your staid old historians, they'll say, oh, well, Pennsylvania almost went to war with Maryland, over, but they didn't go to war with Maryland. And then they also, if they had, you know? like that war would have been a lot smaller than the Civil War. So it's yeah, like setting up a, a union. Point. You know what I mean? It's like to look yeah. at the little, oh, so you're saying war is a negative. Well, what would have been the total cost of that war? All right. Well, then comparatively to these other ones that the federal government's allowed for, it doesn't sound like a win. Right. And it, and the other villain in the book, other than Lincoln, in the in the first half of it is John Marshall. Well, I, I don't I, even I mean, know who John Marshall is. Oh, we'll close the, on this. The, yeah. Third uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice. Oh, I've he, ever yeah, heard of Thurgood? Yes. No, no, that's a different Marshall. <laughs> different Marshall, yeah, you're right. Uh, Are they related? I maybe I don't know. I don't know. They never know. They Virginia. He was actually he was actually a cousin of Jefferson. Okay, uh, but couldn't be more adamantly opposed to his po- po- political um, philosophy. He was a Hamiltonian. Uh, cool story about Marshall. Uh, he was at Valley Forge, along with Hamilton, and. Marshall always had this inclination toward more British centralized government with, a, you know, there was a Bank of England and very centralized. Well, so he's at Valley Forge and he and Hamilton are sitting around and they're like, holy shit, there's this encampment over here and the Delaware guys are all hanging out with just the Delaware guys. And they're talking, they're Delawareese or whatever the, you know, Delaware people speak. And then the Virginia guys are over here. They all have their own little camps. And he looks out, he goes, what are we fighting for here? <laughs> You know, uh, they're all just fighting this for their own self-interest. And this is true because when, you know, there was trouble back home, they all defected. (laughs) Uh, So he says the only way we're going to have anything that resembles Britain is we have to destroy this feeling of provincialism in them. And he held that lesson throughout his whole career so that he's uh, approved as chief justice. He's one of the... He's not one of the, but he's associated with the Midnight Justices of John, John Adams. So as John Adams is going out the door, he appoints all these Federalist Justices because the Federalists are so unpopular for a variety of reasons, alien sedition acts and like. Is it worth reading the Federal? Because I, I find I've tried and it's really boring. It's not you know an easy what? read. The best ones, the best way to uh, go to the Federalist Papers is pick the ones that you hear about. Like someone right, and says, then just go reference and it. Just, just read that one yeah. rather than reading it because you talk about sleep-inducing, it'll just be out. Uh, but... But just to marshal for a point, he then he stays until the 1830s as Chief Justice, and he's considered like the Federalist bulwark. And from that point on, we get things like judicial review in Marbury versus Madison, where the there, it's not explicit at all within the Constitution that the federal judiciary can uh, rule laws unconstitutional. Then McCullough versus Maryland in 1819, he goes further. He says, no, the federal judiciary can rule state laws unconstitutional. At this point. Madison himself is like, oh, this is going out. Of, this is out of control. How can we have this? If, if a federal judiciary, which is, of course, appointed by 
the and approved by the Congress and the executive, uh, well, got that backwards, executive and Congress respectively, can uh, can overrule state laws and declare them null and void. We don't have a federal republic anymore. You don't have a power sharing agreement. It's all centralized, and he was all on board for that. And he used really duplicitous ways by which to argue for it. So he's a real villain. I, I actually make the remark um, in that chapter on uh, at the end with Marshall and talking about judicial nationalism that he was more responsible to, for the Civil War than anyone other than Lincoln. Interesting. And that was uh, Marshall? What was John Marshall. John Marshall. All right. That concludes part one of A Twisted History of the United States. We will have to do World War II, Green New Deals, FDRs, Rockefellers. We'll get into that whole era on the next one. Yeah. Uh, when is the book actually coming out? Where can people find it? July 4th. July 4th, everywhere books are sold on Amazon, uh, Ingram, uh, well, Barnes Noble, all everywhere it's available. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, oh, uh, and just the podcast. A podcast. Uh, we, Charlie and I run a podcast. It's the Hot Water History Podcast. We do a lot of the same shit that uh, you guys do. Hell uh, yeah. Yeah. And, but, uh, a little bit we, of a local twist. We do a little local twist. Chicago we make fun ones. of a lot of local people here in Chicago, especially our uh, suburb of Oak Park. And uh, it's pretty fun. Oh, and uh, there's a greater website we could find all my other works at ho- it's at hotwaterhistory.com. Love it. And then, uh, Johnny, we're going to have to do another episode at some point, get into some financials. I know you're trying to get rid of all your assets and get down to Mexico before the thing yeah. implodes. Yeah. But exactly. why don't you let people know where they can find you? Yeah, uh, Peddling Fiction Podcast. And if you want a way to time the market, look at what I'm doing. Because, it, you know, if I'm trying to unload my place right now, the bubble just popped. Rates went up. I'm a great contrarian indicator. So, yeah, Peddling Fiction Podcast, peddlingfictionpodcast.com, at Pedal Fiction on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, this all is right. great. I'm glad we got to use my rooftop It's once. beautiful up here. Yeah, you know, every time you buy all these amenities, you're going to, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm gonna you've never been up here. One, this is the first Wait, you got I'm a pool? No. No. But other places I have, and you never, you, you use it once, and this is the first time I've used it. Beautiful. And there's some other people using it. Which yeah. Is nice. nice. Porch door vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Been a pleasure. Door. Thank you for hitting me up. Thank you for the book. I'm going to finish reading it. We're going to do a part two and then another one once I finish You're the it. the best. And furthermore, people should buy the book because you got a blurb on the back. Hell yeah. I do. Oh, yeah. Shit. My he blurb was. Big man you are. Uh, you are. This is the most important work of our lifetime. I just need to learn how to read first. There you go. Beautiful. <laughs> nice summary. Appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody.